Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Our old buddy Carl Frisch is on the line with us. Carl is a Democratic candidate now for the Fairfax County School Board. In the past, Carl has been on numerous times on this program as a consultant to Democratic politicians. He used to work in Louise Slaughter's office in the U.S. House of Representatives, if I'm remembering correctly. And I think this is so cool, Carl. First of all, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. And I should say, Carl Frisch's last name is spelled F-R-I-S-C-H, and Carl with a K. CarlFrisch.com, spelled that way, is his website. And... On this program, literally at the end of every show, every day, I encourage people to get out and get active and participate and often say that that means, I mean, run for local office, right? This is where it begins. Pretty much everybody who's ever made any consequential contribution to our country politically, regardless of how high they rise in politics, started out with the local school board or the town council or something like that. Carl Frisch, tell us what you're doing. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. There's a Washington Times, everybody knows they're a right-wing outlet. There was a story last month about how right-wingers are targeting school boards this election cycle because they know firsthand that building the bench and getting those people into the school board is what eventually turns them into Congress people and such. I'm running, you know, my partner is a teacher and you know, I've worked in and around politics and public policy for a long time, never really considered doing this myself because I've seen the crazy hoops that people have to jump through. But, you know, the Trump era has pushed a lot of us in directions that we never thought we'd be pushed. Yeah. And in an effort to do something meaningful to affect change here in my own community, I decided to take the plunge and run for school board myself. And it's been enlightening, to say the least. Well, as we see school boards from Texas to you know a bunch of other red states trying to do things like change textbooks so that they don't talk about right. evolution, trash gay people, replace uh, the history of the country with Ronald Reagan and Rush Limbaugh. I mean, literally, that's <laughs> one of the proposals yeah. that the Texas school boards were making. You know, this is important stuff. This is not just people on the school board working their way up politically. It's also people on the school board have something to say about how our kids are educated. And there are future voters and our future politicians and our future executives and our future workers and our future everything. It's well, and you know, and this is we're right here in the DC suburbs, right outside the city and the right wing, alt right Christian conservative organizations, they test what they're going to do at the school board level in Fairfax County, where I'm running. Hmm. They try their tactics here. They piloted their programs to attack trans kids here in Fairfax the County. They're called bathroom um, bills. Exactly. Well, I'm trying to get school boards to treat them differently. And when they see what works here, they export it across the country. And I'd be lying if I didn't 
tell you that it was interesting that kind of crazy even that I would be the first openly LGBT person elected in Fairfax County history, given that it's 2019. It's a little odd. Uh, But in a county that has been routinely targeted by anti-LGBT activists, including my opponent, I needed to stand up and (laughs) say enough is enough. Here's the right thing to do. And we're not going to do the wrong thing anymore. Yeah. Amen. So, Carl, real quickly, what advice do you have? We're talking with Carl Frisch, an old friend, a longtime Democratic consultant, now settled down in Fairfax County and running for the school board, K-A-R-L-F-R-I-S-C-H.com, carlfrisch.com is his website. Carl, what advice do you have to somebody who might be watching right now thinking, you know, I've got a little time. I could, you know, run for the school board or I could run for the city council or whatever. How do you start? Who do you call? Where do you go? What do you do? Well, I mean, it depends on the area, obviously. And you mentioned my website. People can find it easily, helpingcarl.com. It just goes right to where oh, okay. they need to go. With a K. Any way they want to spell, they want to spell my name, it goes to the same place, oh, helpingcarl.com. Cool. Helpingcarl.com, uh, you know, the way you start is by talking to your friends and neighbors about whether they think you should do it. You can't do this without the support of your friends, your neighbors, your family. And the next step from there is getting to know the voters. You know, get involved in your local political party because that's a great place to find activists and volunteers. But then get out there and start meeting the voters. Hear what they have to say. You can get spun up on all sorts of issues during a campaign. And the easiest way to find out if those issues have any relevance is to get out there and talk to voters and see what they're talking about. And I tell you, people want very basic things from their local government. They want great schools for their kids. They want great schools because they know that that builds a great foundation for the community. And they don't want these culture warriors in there, you know, messing with public education. Right. Right. Remarkable stuff. Helpingcarl.com. You said, yeah, regardless yeah, of how you call Carl. Com, anything, yeah, anything people can do to help would be greatly appreciated. I'm already being attacked for being supported by these so-called special interests, and they define that as Democrats, <laughs> teachers, <laughs> and, and other LGBT people. Yes, so, teachers uh, are if you're special, a special interests. interest out there, <laughs> if you're a special interest out there, I want you to go to helpingcarl.com and help Carl. Yeah, there you go. And let me, by the way, just toss it out. Anybody else all across the country who's running for local office who'd like to come on this program and make a pitch, the door is open. Carl, I wish you the very, very best. Good luck. Thanks very much. Great talking to you, my friend. I'm so I'm so glad to hear that you're doing this. It's such a noble thing. Carl Frisch, helpingcarl.com. We'll be back. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And Congressman Ro Khanna is with us, the congressman from the Silicon Valley area of California. He's also the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Khanna.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. The number two big cheese in the progressive world in Washington, D.C. Congressman Khanna, it's great having you with us. Uh, what's going on in D.C. right now that's got your attention? Well, Tom, we just had a meeting with Adam Smith, the chair of Armed Services. We're very concerned about the escalation of a potential war in Iran. The president has heated up the rhetoric. And an amendment passed, my amendment through the House, to stop any funding for any war in Iran. And the progressives are pushing to make sure that this language is included in the final defense authorization bill so that we can make sure this president doesn't get us into another war. And we've also been very focused on trying to get something done for gun violence. I just had a meeting with the father of someone, a 15-year-old, who died because of gun shooting, who died because the gun was not properly secured. And he was on the Hill pushing for Ethan's Law, which would require proper storage of firearms, something that seems so common sense. And we're trying everything we can to get something done to deal with the gun violence epidemic. Yeah, good, good. Sounds like great stuff. Shall we pick up phone calls? Sounds great, Tom. Okay, let's go for it. Jim in Denver, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. My concern is about the funding for the Medicare for All. I think it only has to be one way. It has to be a payroll tax on all income. If they want to have that carve-out between 130 and 250 to, so we don't lose all the suburban votes, I could see that. But 
it has to go all the way up. Remember what you were saying on TV earlier this week about how little it is that, you know, if I make a billion dollars, the amount of money I pay in for Social Security and Medicare is, you know, a fraction of a percent. And that's just not fair. Well, I think that's just Social Security. Um, but let's get the congressman's response. Well, Jim, first of all, it's important to realize that Medicare for all will be like a tax cut for most middle class Americans. They will no longer be paying the thousands and thousands of dollars to private insurance that they currently have to pay. Secondly, you don't have to raise taxes on the middle class. You could actually exempt, for example, households making under 124000 125000 That's 84% of American households. Then how do you raise the revenue? You raise it with progressive taxation, have employers pay part of the premium tax, have corporations that are going to make $9 trillion of profits in 2019 pay part of the tax, and have wealthy individuals pay part of the tax. So progressive taxation can play for Medicare for All, and most middle-class families will get a tax cut or save money. Kathy in Aetna, Wyoming, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Congressman, what I'm about to tell you, I think, is probably happening to other people in the United States. My husband had stage 3 colon cancer, and he was kicked off his uh, insurance through his business. So he got private insurance, and the price kept going up and up and up. So finally, we got on the ACA last year for a family. So... When I filed my taxes this year, based on our estimate of 72000 but my husband had some overtime, so we made $79,000. i have got a bill now from the IRS telling us we owe them $37,000 for the subsidy that they said we, that they approved on $72,000. What do you think about that? Wow. Well, Kathy, that's outrageous. First of all, my heart goes out to you and your husband, and I know it's difficult to deal with these health crises. And... You shouldn't have to worry about your bills or where you're going to get funding when you're having to deal with a life-threatening disease. And that's why we need Medicare for All, so that every person would have health care. You don't have to rely on subsidies and payments. You would be covered, and you wouldn't have any out-of-pocket costs. But in the meantime, if you write to my office, I'll put you in touch with your congressperson, because there's no reason that the IRS should be taxing you for subsidies that you've gotten under the Affordable Care Act. That's wrong. And we will do what we can with your member of Congress to see if we can talk to the IRS. And the website for feedback to you is kana.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A. Kana.house.gov. And then if you put where you're from, we will have to refer it to your member of Congress, which we will do, and make sure that they're aware they can help you with the IRS. Okay. Vic in Indianapolis, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Rep. Connor, my question is, does the Democratic Party have a platform where to reach progressive evangelicals? Like, with regular evangelicals, their movement is very strong, and they uh, behind Trump 100%, but there's a small group of progressive evangelicals who worry about climate change, health care, taking care of the needy and all that. Is there something to do that? I'll get my answer off the air. That'd be a good idea. Thank you, Vic. Vic, it's a great point, and we need more people like you who speak about why progressive values are consistent with principles of faith. I mean, if you are a person of faith, you care about respecting the planet and respecting our environment. If you're a person of faith, you care about treating the stranger with basic respect and kindness. You care about the poor and treating them with dignity. And there's no reason that we should cede the argument that the conservative agenda is somehow more consistent with the values of many faiths. And so I do think that the Democrats have to do a better job of talking about faith and making the case that our platform on the environment, on health care, on education is consistent with a lot of faith-based voters. George in Enterprise, Alabama, you're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. I'm going in a different direction. Mine is about impeachment and is one of the reasons Nancy Pelosi might be reluctant is it's a conflict of interest for her because she's number three to be president if president is gone and the vice president resigns. Wouldn't that have been a concern for Newt Gingrich back during the uh, Clinton impeachment congressman? 
It would have. And if anything, Speaker Pelosi has been the most restrained, the most methodical. She has not in any way rushed out to call for impeachment. She is now allowing for the impeachment inquiry to move forward. But she has been very clear that we have a constitutional duty to go where the facts lead us. I assure you, I've known Speaker Pelosi for 20 years. She has absolutely no interest in being president of the United States. She loves being Speaker of the House. What she's going to do is based on what she sees as right and her obligation. Congressman Ro Khanna is taking your calls. And so your calls on any topic. He represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley area. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O, Khanna. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see those wrinkles around your eyes, frown lines, crow's feet, large under eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. My under eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet were gone in minutes. Best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them, and the effects last for hours. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get rid of your wrinkles, under-eye bags, and crow's feet today. Visit triplexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, or you can call 800-685-1292. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe. And a lot of these are you know, other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So this is from chapter five, page 47, titled Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies that successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, You have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. 
Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. And welcome back. Joe in Cupertino, California. You are on the air with your congressman, Congressman Khanna. Kudos, Tom. I wanted to thank you for the best show on television. It's amazing. Anyway, Congressman Connor, I wanted to say about home here. We had an incident in Sunnyvale yesterday with a child, 17 years old, bringing a gun. Apparently was arrested at San Jose State University, made some threats, almost sit down, you know, the whole school district. I wanted to see your reaction to that Sandy Hook video. I saw that and watched it with my kids the other day. It was very thought-provoking. I understand that you're strongly an advocate for gun safety regulation, but I wanted to suggest to you that there are, through this video, many holes, children that are slipping through the cracks that we see in our community but we don't act on. And I don't want to sound like I'm snooping, but I think if we're proactive, we might be able to eliminate some of the in-school violence that teachers, counselors, principals, parents, children are aware of, but yet we don't act on it, and how we can better do a better job protecting our kids rather than providing them with backpacks that are bulletproof. And, you know, I'll take my answer off there, but you understand where I'm coming from, right? I do, Joe, and I appreciate that. And, of course, we need, as a start, common sense laws to tackle gun violence. That means there's no reason to have assault weapons on our street that are weapons of war. There's no reason to have high-capacity magazines. We need laws to have safe storage of guns so that guns aren't being misused the way they were in the Sandy Hook case where the guns weren't properly locked up. And we need to have background checks so guns aren't getting in the hands of uh, criminals. But you're right that that's not the whole solution. We also 
have to look at the well-being, emotional and mental health of young people and students and make sure we have that holistic intervention against bullying, against types of violence at a young age and intervention so that our focus isn't just people's academic success, but their total well-being. And I think that's critical. You know, one of the issues that he brought up reminds me of the fact that the Republican response to violence in our schools, whether it's gun violence or whether it's, you know, even bullying, is to put police in schools. And particularly at low-income schools, what this has ended up causing is what's sometimes referred to as the school-to-prison pipeline, where kids are arrested for things that they used to sit in the principal's office for a half hour. And what are your thoughts on how we should best be dealing with that? We've been cutting the number of counselors. We've been cutting the number of school nurses and replacing them with cops. Well, it's totally short-sighted. I mean, what we need is more counselors, more nurses, more educators, more community leaders to talk about developing in a healthy way. And we have a mass incarceration epidemic in this country. We're incarcerating too many people for small offenses. And once someone has an arrest record, it almost destroys their entire life and puts them in the margins of society and makes them both a greater threat to their own families and to society. Chris in Corrales, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Thank you for taking my call. I think one thing people forget about is the victims that get all these shoot-ups that they have in schools and public events is they're victimized twice, once by getting shot, and then all the medical bills that pile on that nobody pays for. I propose a tax on guns and bullets that would set up an account to pay for the victims after they've been victimized once and not get victimized twice by the hospitals and having to pay their bills and their life completely being turned upside down. You put a tax on bullets and guns and set that account up. And I think it's a piece of legislation that who would go against it? Well, Chris, I would support that kind of uh, tax because you do have a negative externality uh, in economic terms from guns and bullets. In other words, it's causing a public harm that isn't accounted in the price. The other thing, and we've discussed this on Tom's show before, is to require insurance. I mean, just like when you drive an automobile, you have to have insurance in case uh, there's damage that happens to your vehicle or you cause damage to someone. Similarly, require uh, people to carry insurance for the possession of firearms. Pete in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, Congressman, and hello, Tom. Thanks for taking my question. My question is about we're in the political season for the presidential election, and every time there's a Democratic representative on television and they're saying, well, how are you going to deal with this wonderful Trump economy? They don't go to number one. He inherited the greater economy from Obama. We recovered the jobs lost during the last great Republican Depression. We saved millions of jobs with General Motors. We had an unemployment rate when Obama left office that was probably considered full employment by normal standards. And the stock market had tripled from 6,500 down to 18. Yet we still say, well, you know, it is a great economy that Trump has, but there's other things. Why don't we just go right to that point as a unified voice? So I'll take my, your answer on that one off the air or whatever. Well, Pete, we need you out on the stump. You're absolutely right that President Obama stabilized this economy, saved us from a potential Great Depression, had put us on track for economic growth, created millions of jobs. But I think we have to make one additional point, which is this economy is not great for many, many Americans. 70 million Americans in this country, 70 million American families, make under $75,000 a year. That's almost two-thirds of the country, 220 million Americans. For the last 40 years, they have not gotten a meaningful pay increase. And the cost of living has gone up, cost of education, cost of health care. Their salaries have been relatively stagnant. Democrats are going to make sure they get a huge increase when we get into power because we're going to have Medicare for all that's going to remove the excessive costs of health insurance and people's wages will rise. We're going to have a minimum wage law up to $15. We're going to allow for the unions to bargain. That's going to lead to a rise in wages. We're going to have the earned income tax credit. So we're going to focus on the working class and middle class who are not doing well in this Trump economy. Congressman, we just have 30 seconds, so we're going to hit a hard break here. Your thoughts on Medicare for all versus Medicare for anybody who wants it? 
Well, Medicare for all is the correct way to go. I mean, that's what Daniel Moynihan and Lyndon Johnson said, because if you have Medicare for anybody who wants it, what are you going to have? You're going to have the healthiest people and the richest people go and buy insurance, and uh, everyone who has some pre-existing condition or some illness is going to be out of luck and have to pay huge premiums. What we need to do is have the same system we have for seniors. In seniors, everyone is enrolled, and everyone gets it. If you really want supplemental insurance, you can go get it. And all we're saying is that should be the case for everyone in this country. There you go. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls. It's the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Khanna is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Khanna.house.gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. We'll be right back. So our newest video for our uh, Tom Hartman program supporters over at TomHartman.com just went up. It's about PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid, which is one of the chemicals that's used to make Teflon and to make some kinds of plastics and is extraordinarily toxic, both to the reproductive system. In fact, there's a body of thought that suggests it's associated with a drop in sperm count levels and with damage to the liver. It's extremely persistent, it's bioaccumulative, it's toxic. And the German government just did a study, of, of a three-year study, two, 2014 to 2017. They just released the results of 2,500 children all over the country. And the results are truly grim. This was just uh, released by the German Environment Ministry about the levels of this chemical and other precursors, the ingredients that are used to make plastic were found. So you can read all about it or see all about it, hear all about it at TomHartman.com. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWNGOLD. Charles in Miami, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hey, hi. Good afternoon, gentlemen. My question is this. I also support Medicare for All. I'm wondering why don't we try to go to a 50% corporate tax rate? I don't care what the Republicans said. It was done before. You have people like Donald Trump not paying their taxes and doing the opposite, claiming that they lost however many millions and not paying their taxes. And these people still go back and fund the Republican Party. So why not take that money and use it for the common good? And that's what it should be for. And Got it, all Charles. The semantics Charles, you're starting to repeat yourself. Got it. Charles, well, you make a uh, good point about these tax cuts going to corporate elites. In 2019, we're going to have $9 trillion of corporate profits. Obviously, the stock market was going to go up when Donald Trump and the Republicans handed corporations and their executives a huge tax break. But what they didn't do is anything meaningful for uh, most working class and middle class families. And what I would do is reverse the Trump tax break, at least raise the corporate taxes to what they were, and take those trillions of dollars of savings and increase the earned income tax credit or uh, give that money to, as a raise to working class and middle class families. Kurt in Ankeny, Iowa. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Congressman, in the gun debate, we hear a lot about the loopholes that are there. We all know the gun show loophole, the Charleston loophole. 
I'm just wondering if you're aware of what's called the 80% lower loophole, which allowed people to buy an 80% unfinished AR-15 lower receiver, and with a few simple tools and a little knowledge you could find on the Internet, you can finish that and buy parts and make a complete AR-15 completely unserialized. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you're aware of that and if there's something that we could add to uh, some legislation. Kurt, I'm aware of loopholes where you could have uh, finished guns to get around uh, the assault weapons ban that was in place from 1994 to 2004. Uh, One of the things people did is they had unfinished guns that they purchased and then they finished them and and that allowed them to evade the assault weapons ban. We have tried to close some of those loopholes in the new assault weapons ban that has been written by David Cicilline and that the House is considering. I'm not sure if the 80% rule on the AR-15s is sufficiently covered, but it's a good point, and I will certainly raise it to make sure that we are covering those kind of loopholes. Mike in Munster, Indiana, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yes, hi. I have a question about impeachment, and there's the obstruction uh, case in the Mueller report, and the Republicans say, well, there was no, orders were not carried out, so there is no actual obstruction. I was wondering, just to make things easier, if you charged them with malfeasance and say the orders were illegal, the underlings didn't carry it out, but we didn't elect a president for his underlings to run the country. And I was wondering if we would streamline it, just make it simple, get the Mueller report out there. And and the Senate is not going to convict them, but just uh, charge them with malfeasance and, 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 and say you're not running the country like a president should, like we expect. Well, it's a, it's a thoughtful uh, point. I do think he is engaged in malfeasance and not running the country with a respect for the separation of powers. But I do want to say that an attempted crime is still a crime. Uh, just because Donald Trump may not have been ultimately successful in obstructing the investigation doesn't excuse the fact that he tried and that in trying he violated the law. And then, of course, you have a lot of the situation where he's personally benefiting from taxpayer dollars. So I think there are many, many areas of wrongdoing and concern that the Judiciary Committee needs to uh, outline. Yeah, if I walk into a bank and try and rob it and I don't end up walking out with money, I'm still guilty of bank robbery. Scott in Hurricane West Virginia, you're on the air with Congressman Ro Hello, I've got a very simple fix for this assault weapon deal. St. Valentine's Day massacre, government acted really quick to put a requirement class three FFL for automatic weapons. People still own them. You still can have your 1927 Thompson. Do the same thing for semi-automatic or assault weapons, semi-automatic assault weapons, AKs and ARs. Pretty simple fix. You're not denying anybody their right to own a weapon. Just classify them under the same category as fully automatic weapons. So, Scott, if I understand it, so you would you would classify them and then they wouldn't be able to use them? Or what, what is the... No, I've dropped him, but I know what he's talking about. I've talked about this on the air and it's in my book on guns. It's not illegal to have a fully automatic weapon. You can have a Thompson machine gun or an Uzi or whatever. But what you have to do is you have, it's a $200 application fee. You've got to apply to the ATF. It's a six-month process. They do a background check. You've, you know, There's just all these hoops you have to jump through. But you can go to gun ranges and shoot fully automatic weapons, and there's thousands of them that are owned around the country. They're just real rare because after the Valentine's Day massacre, they put these restrictions on fully automatic weapons. And what he's suggesting is that we extend those restrictions to semi-automatic weapons as well, so that people using shotguns, people using pistols, revolvers, no problem. But if you want a a semi-automatic weapon, you've got to jump through the same hoops that you do with a fully automatic weapon. Sounds very reasonable to me. I mean, I would support that. I mean, I'd support a ban of those weapons, but if we already have a framework and if we, uh, if those weapons are just uh, where you've registered them and at a shooting range, I have no problem with that. And that seems like a reasonable way forward. Jim in Los Angeles, we have just one minute until we hit a hard break here, Jim. A real quick question for Congressman Connor. 
please. Yes, Congressman. None of the policies anyone's talking about matters. What the Republicans are doing is a computer coup. And I had mentioned this to you two weeks ago. They have effectively stolen five million votes in Los Angeles that only a computer with an unknown owner can control. And they're doing it in Georgia and all over the country. Okay, we have a half a minute left. Your thoughts on electronic voting? Jim, I'm concerned about the potential for interference and hacking in our voting machines and on our voter rolls. The House has passed a paper ballot requirement. We are being vigilant about making sure that interference or hacking of voting machines doesn't take place, and we're going to have to have a lot of election observers and vigilance in the 2020 election. But I share a concern about the manipulation of voting machines and uh, hacking into voter rolls and, and the havoc that could wreck. Isn't it interesting? It took uh, Israel three days to count the vote because they only vote on paper. It's like, <laughs> we're, the, we're the village idiots here, Congressman. Anyhow, we'll be back with more of your calls from Congressman Ro Khanna. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 17th District of California. Today we're reading from Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. This is from the introduction. There's a lot of fear around in the U.S. today, and this fear is often mingled with anger, blame, and envy. Fear all too often blocks rational deliberation, poisons hope, and impedes constructive cooperation for a better future. What is today's fear about? Well, many Americans feel themselves powerless out of control of their own lives. They fear that the American dream, the hope that our children will flourish and do even better than you have done, has died, and that everything has slipped away from them. These feelings have their basis in real problems. Among others, income stagnation in the lower middle class, alarming declines in the health and longevity of members of this group, especially men, and the escalating costs of higher education at the very time that a college degree is increasingly required for employment. But real problems are difficult to solve, and their solutions take long, hard study and cooperative work toward an uncertain future. It can consequently seem all too attractive to convert that sense of panic and impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups such as immigrants, racial minorities, and women. They have taken our jobs, or wealthy elites have stolen our country. The problems that globalization and automation create for working class Americans are real, deep, and seemingly intractable. Rather than face those difficulties and uncertainties, people who sense their standard of living declining can instead grasp after villains, and a fantasy takes shape. If we can somehow keep them out, build a wall, or keep them in their place in subservient positions, we can regain our pride and, for men, their masculinity. Fear leads then to aggressive othering strategies rather than to useful analysis. At the same time, fear also runs rampant among people on the left, who seek greater social and economic equality and the vigorous protection of hard-won rights for women and minorities. Many people who are dismayed by the election are reacting to it as if the end of the world is at hand. A majority of my students, many acquaintances, many colleagues feel and say often with anguish that our democracy is on the verge of collapse, that the new administration is unprecedented in its willingness to cater to racism, misogyny, and homophobia. They fear especially for the possible collapse of democratic freedoms speech, travel, association, the press. My younger students especially think that the America they know and love is about to disappear. Rather than analyze matters soberly and listen to other people trying to sort things through, they often demonize an entire half of the American electorate, portraying them as monsters, enemies of everything good. As in the book of Revelation, these are the last days when a righteous remnant must contend against satanic forces. We all need first to take a deep breath and recall our history. When I was a little girl, African Americans were being lynched in the South. Communists were losing their jobs. Women were just barely beginning to enter prestigious universities in the workforce, and sexual harassment was a ubiquitous offense that had no laws to deter it. Jews could not win partnerships in major law firms. Gays and lesbians, criminals under law, were almost always in the closet. People with disabilities had no rights in public space and public education. Transgender was a category that had as yet no name. America was far from beautiful. 
These facts tell us two things my students need to know. First, the America for which they are nostalgic never existed, not fully. It was a work in progress, a set of dynamic aspirations put in motion by tough work, cooperation, hope, and solidarity over a long period of time. A just and inclusive America never was, and is not yet a fully achieved reality. Second, this present moment may look like backsliding from our march toward human equality, but it's not the apocalypse, and it's actually a time when hope and work can accomplish a great deal of good. On both left and right, panic doesn't just exaggerate our dangers, it also makes our moment much more dangerous than it would otherwise be, more likely to lead to genuine disasters. It's like a bad marriage in which fear, suspicion, and blame displace careful thought about what the real problems are and how to resolve them. Instead, those emotions taking over become their own problem and prevent constructive work, hope, listening, and cooperation. When people are afraid of one another and of an unknown future, fear easily gives rise to scapegoating, to fantasies of payback, and to a poisonous envy of the fortunate, whether those victorious in the election or those dominant socially and economically. We all remember FDR's statement that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We recently heard departing President Obama say, democracy can buggle when we give in to fear. Roosevelt was wrong if we take his words literally. Although we had reason to fear fear, we certainly had many other things to fear in his time, such as Nazism, hunger, and social conflict. Fear of those evils was rational, and to that extent, we should not fear our fear, though we should always examine it. But Obama's more precise and modest statement is surely right. Giving way to fear, which means drifting with its currents, refusing skeptical examination, is surely dangerous. We need to think hard about fear and where fear is leading us. After taking a deep breath, we all need to understand ourselves as well as we can, using that moment of detachment to figure out where fear and related emotions come from and where they are leading us. The Monarchy of Fear by Martha Nussbaum. Well, as we're hitting the end of the week here and getting ready for the weekend and all kinds of physical activities, maybe a good anti-inflammatory and pain reliever like CBD oil would be a good thing to have around. Uh, CBD is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people who want the benefits of cannabinoids without medical marijuana, without getting high. Uh, it's non-toxic, as I said, potent pain reliever. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So it remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. That's newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi. Good afternoon, everybody. I have a question regarding the whistleblower controversy. Because I've been very confused about what Nadler has been doing as far as the impeachment investigation, I was wondering if Nancy Pelosi would actually get 218 House members to impeach Trump, to actually go into a real impeachment inquiry, wouldn't that give them the judicial authority to question the whistleblower himself or, or herself? That's my question. Well, Vanessa, first of all, we are in an official impeachment inquiry. Uh, Nadler has started that, and he has the authority to subpoena witnesses in order to assess the president's wrongdoing. Uh, separately, Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee has the authority to subpoena whoever they think the whistleblower may be and to require the compulsion of those documents. And my view is that they will do that. They are going to issue those subpoenas, and that doesn't even require an impeachment hearing. I mean, they have that power as we sit today. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, good day, gentlemen. Thank you for this public forum. 
A congressman in his New York Times column yesterday, Paul Krugman, wrote, Trump is following the modern authoritarian playbook in which every function of government is perverted into a tool for rewarding friends and punishing enemies. Furthermore, on the show, Tom has called him an arsonist, and I think this fits literally and figuratively from what he's doing to our burning planet to what he's doing to our democracy itself. Therefore, Congressman Khanna, do you not agree we need a speaker who's going to fight fire with fire when it comes to this lawless presidency? And therefore, Nancy Pelosi needs to either use her bully pulpit to strongly push impeachment or resign her speakership. Well, I believe that Speaker Pelosi has been standing up to this president. She has stood up to this president to his face in meetings, and she has greenlighted Jerry Nadler to have an impeachment inquiry. We have an official impeachment inquiry, and my view is that that's going to result in evidence and result in a decision. So I do believe that the speaker has greenlighted the inquiry that you want. Catherine in Burlington, Vermont, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, hi, Congressman. Bernie Sanders unveiled his plan for housing for all which would get rid of homelessness, or I shouldn't say get rid of it, alleviate that. What is your opinion on that? And he would support it by getting a wealth tax. Well, I think the Senator Sanders plan is uh, exactly what we need. The president has uh, targeted my home state for homelessness, but he has offered no solutions. Uh, Senator Sanders is offering a solution. He's going to massively increase Section 8 vouchers so people can afford rent. He's going to massively increase grants for building affordable housing so we can put people in homes. He's going to offer wraparound services because it's not enough just to put someone in a home, but you have to give them mental health counseling. You have to help them get a job. You have to help them get back on their feet. And if we can have that plan, we can tackle the homelessness crisis in many parts of this country. We can help people have affordable housing again. John in Crawfordville, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh, Yes. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Congressman, I just wanted to relate to you and get your opinion about an incident that happened about two or three weeks ago. My wife, who is a Navy veteran, received a letter from the VA informing her that she was on her last bottle of pain medication, which is a synthetic opioid. It's not even the Oxycontin that's causing all of the problem. It's a step down from that and that they were going to advise her to seek pain management through acupuncture, cold therapy, physical therapy. I just wanted to get your reaction. If other veterans who are in severe pain, and I understand OxyContin is a very dangerous substance, but is this the VA's plan is to cut off the veterans by sending them a letter and saying, well, now you're going cold turkey off of this pain medication? First, thank you for your uh, service to our country, and thank you for raising this issue. I mean, obviously, we can't be having uh, dangerous, addictive opioids prescribed, but I agree with you that we can go cold turkey and that we have to have some solution for how people can deal with pain medication that is not addictive, and if they have been on OxyContin, how they can get off of it in a responsible way. So I will raise this issue if you write to me with the details. I'm happy to raise this with the VA and the Veterans Affairs Committee and make sure that we are treating veterans who have been prescribed OxyContin responsibly. And the congressman's website to reach him is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. Bart, in Bellevue, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Rokana. Yeah, good morning, Tom, and uh, the good congressman. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, the congressman an opinion about the Medicare Advantage plans, and I have to semi-contradict Tom on that. I have a Medicare Advantage plan, and uh, I pay zero premium, zero doctor office visits, and $45 for a specialist. Look, I think the evidence is overwhelming that if you have Medicare and not the private insurance, that you're going to get more comprehensive care and you're going to have no premiums. The challenge with some of these Medicare Advantage plans is it looks fine when you're healthy. It's fine when you don't have catastrophic condition. But God forbid you get cancer. God forbid you have to be in a hospital for six months. And that's when people literally go bankrupt. And they didn't read the fine print. They don't realize that these private 
private insurance companies are banking on your good health but aren't covering you when you have a real need. And that's why we need a human right of health care, which covers you whether you have a mild ailment or whether you have cancer, so you don't have to worry about going into debt if, God forbid, you have something terrible happen to you or your family. There you go. Congressman, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. I really Thank you. It. Yeah, good talking. Thank you, Tom. Randy, in Jenison, Michigan, you wanted to talk about insurance on guns. Uh, the congressman had to leave. I believe he has a vote, but feel free to disagree with me. We've got a minute left. Yeah, you talk about insurance on guns. Yeah. You'd be far greater ahead by having insurance on alcohol and drugs. So many more lives are damaged, killed, raped, beatings, uh, from the influence of drugs and alcohol. So have insurance policies on those for anybody that buys it. Have background checks, have red flag laws. Do everything the same as you wish to do on the guns. Yeah. We'd be much farther ahead. I, Kids are safer in school than they are on the streets. Well, I don't disagree with that. I think it's a, you know, it's a shame that so many people are as hysterical as they are about you know, gun violence in schools and things. But I don't see where, you know, if, if you walk into a liquor store and say, I'll take a pint of uh, gin, they say, well, here, first fill out this insurance policy. I, I just, I, I can't see that working, Randy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Harbin Book Club today, our book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. This is from the preface, Shooting Guns in the Desert Can Surprise You is the title. We don't teach people how to shoot. We teach them how to think. Mike, the second in command of one of the nation's largest firearms training institutes, tells me over an early dinner. We are at a country club 20 miles north of the gun range where I just spent the last two days firing 200 rounds of ammunition and learning how to safely carry and operate a handgun. A tall, distinguished-looking man who bears a slight resemblance to former President George H.W. Bush, Mike is wearing a yellow polo shirt, neat, clean khakis, and a belt with a holstered handgun and two full magazines. As we sit in front of a beautiful Rocky Mountain backdrop, the tops of which will be covered with snow in a matter of months, I take a big swig of coffee and search for a tactful way to ask Mike the question that's been swirling around my brain since my first day of training at the Firearms Institute. I finally blurted out, I still don't understand why you're lying to your clients. A silence falls over our table. As Mike looks away from me, I look directly at him and wait for him to respond. 48 hours earlier, I had boarded a plane to learn how to shoot a handgun from the best instructors in the business. The opportunity arose through my friend Sam, not his real name, who in the course of my writing this book has become my guide to the world of firearm enthusiasts. Sam invited me to travel to the Southwest and experience a two-day firearm training course with people he described as the best instructors in the world. I will take it with you, and then after, you can interview all the trainers, he said. They all hate the NRA. He had arranged for the range to comp me the two-day course and rental equipment, plus complete access to the other students, instructors, and its leadership team. Sam, a white, boyish, fast-talking ex-Marine and hardcore gun enthusiast, had passionately pitched the idea to me by phone months earlier. You'll love it and really get a taste for what it's all about. Meet some great people and I'll do it with you, he said. Fashioning myself as an open-minded and adventurous person, I jumped at the chance. Surround myself with 600 armed Americans and thousands of rounds of ammunition for two full days of gun shooting in the hot desert? Sign me up. What could possibly go wrong? So there I am, a city slicker who hasn't sat behind the wheel of a car in three or four years, driving my fully insured economy rental car literally into a desert at sunrise one Friday morning in October. I'm blasting a local hit station with the rindas rolled down, singing at the top of my lungs in an effort to wake myself up enough to handle a handgun. Yes, I'm belting out Sia while doing 70 down a dirt road without another car in sight. As I get closer, I turn off the radio, make the right turn, and take a deep, deep breath. Ahead of me, I see a line of cars about 30 deep and a large sign displaying the logo of the Institute. Next to it is a larger placard. Warning, unsafe to enter without authorization. Live fire training area. Risk of severe bodily injury or death. I've arrived. Before I know it, I'm on a 500-acre compound in the middle of the mountains. I drive up to the parking lot, suddenly overcome by the vastness of this place, and pull into a spot. Sam meets me and tells me that more than 600 people will be taking 20 different classes at the Institute that day, most of which involve handguns and rifles. 
After lunch, classes on automatic machine guns will be available. My eyes grow wide at the idea of even being near a machine gun. I smile at him and look around to see people carrying coolers and equipment, behaving as if they're at an amusement park or some kind of sporting event. This is my first feeling of panic, of being found out as an interloper, or worse, a spy in a foreign world. We move into a line for equipment rentals, and Sam points out the people in the best tactical outfits and reviews their looks. Finally, something I could get into. Sam himself is decked out in a slick black shirt, which accentuates his military build, and inverted cargo pants with pockets that expand into the leg, an outfit suited for concealed carry, he tells me. Everyone around us is wearing a variation of this military-style clothing, and I realize that these are specialty clothes designed for recreational firearms shooting. Some even have custom hats with their names embroidered on the front and back as if they're actually serving in the military. These folks are really hardcore. It really has become a lifestyle, Sam says to me. I glance down at my jeans and bright red sneakers and realize I've made a horrible mistake. As if reading my mind, he says, you're just fine, and starts to examine the kit the young attendant has just handed me, making sure I have everything I need. We move forward toward a long row of tables where staffers are inspecting all weapons and ammunition. It's his first time here, Sam says. Magazines, 200 rounds of ammunition, safety goggles, electronic ear protection, holsters, you got it all. The inspector says, mostly for my benefit. I smile and make a mental note that those things that hold the bullets are called magazines, not clips. And, oh, by the way, it's rounds, not bullets. Okay, lift your hands up, the attendant says. Before I know it, he and Sam are putting a belt around my waist and sliding the ammunition holder and gun holster onto it. The inspector confidently drops a Glock 17 into the gun holster on my right side, the firing side, and I'm carrying a firearm for the very first time in my life. As Sam and I start to walk away, I try to decide if I feel any different. Suddenly, the inspector calls out after us. Wait, are you the Sam, he asks. Sam turns around and smiles. I've seen your videos and stuff, the inspector enthusiastically tells him, becoming a starstruck fangirl right before our eyes. The book is Guns Down by Igor Volsky. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 